Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hi. Hello. As you can gather, listeners, that is not Jeff Lloyd. Jeff can't be here because of a family illness, but I've got someone even better, and that is Katrin Jakobsdottir, the Prime Minister of Iceland. Katrin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. You are a very, very good substitute for Jeff Lloyd. You're, you're, tell us why you're here. Well, I was actually paying Prime Minister May a visit, but also right. the chair of the, or the leader of the opposition, Mr. Corbyn. And then I actually also went to Scotland and visited uh, First Minister Sturgeon. So I've been traveling around the UK and meeting very important people. You have, and you even met me as well. Yeah, even you, <laughs> which was obviously the highlights of the journey. Of, of, of course. course it was, and we spoke together at an, at an event. And how has it been going? It was really interesting to be here at the time when everybody's talking about climate change in the UK. So I yes, thought it was, yes. That was actually, and I think even though it's a huge issue and quite an overwhelming problem, it also gave me some optimism. Uh, to feel that everybody's talking about it and really realizing the urgency of the matter. So I thought that was very interesting. So we talked about climate change in every one of our meetings. So that was a good thing. Very good thing. And you're and you're a world leader on climate change, Iceland, yeah? No, we're not world leaders, definitely not. But we are trying to really turn the wheel back because Iceland has been a, a big emitter per capita, but now we're actually... Uh, turning that wheel hopefully back by having a new funded climate action plan where the first step will be to have an energy shift in transport, creating a new transport system, both the public and private transport system with renewables. And hopefully we will see some results in that soon. And we're also starting a, a great work on carbon binding. And I know you're doing actually a lot of that here in the UK, uh, but, you know, reforestation, revegetation, restoration of Atlanta. So there are things happening. And I think actually the UK and Iceland can learn from each other when it comes to climate change. And when are you hoping to be carbon neutral by? 2040. We think that's pretty good here. The recommendations from the uh, Independent Government Committee have said 2050 here. Now, there's, there's another big reason to be cheerful, which is uh, Icelandic, which is your extraordinary progress you're making on parental leave uh, and, the, and the proposals that you've just passed, which will come into force next year. Tell, us, tell our listeners about them. We now have a, a parental leave of nine months, uh, three months for the mother, three months for the father, and three months to share. And it's uh, use it or lose it. So, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. For example, it's just proven vital for fathers, really, to use their bit because otherwise they lose it. And now we're extending the parental leave to 12 months, uh, five months for the mother, five for the father, and two to share. And it will be a matter of huge social importance, really, because what we see is that it's one of the most stressful times for young families in Iceland. It's the time between the end of parental leave and until they can actually get a place in the universal childcare system. So this is a, a great step forward in bridging that gap and also creating better lives for young families with children. So it's, a, it's an issue not only about gender equality, because it's a, a very important gender equality issue. It's also an issue that will increase the well-being in Iceland. And one of my aims with this trip to meet the Scottish government, because we are actually cooperating in what we call well-being economy government, alongside with other nations like New Zealand. And this is a very important step towards increased well-being and this will be world leadership when these proposals come in yeah well you're always talking about world leadership (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. It's because I that. see you as a world leader, Katrine. Yeah, well, you're, thank you. Your part, your your path breaking. Now, now tell us, tell us what you're going to do on the rest of your trip. Because you have, you're in Parliament today. I'm not yes, in Parliament, but you are. I'm in the British part, in the Westminster. It's been an amazing morning, and you know, you have actually. Uh, I think actually your Parliament is amazing. <laughs> I'm yeah. learning a little bit about the traditions and how you do things. It's very different from the Icelandic and the Nordic way. So I really enjoyed it to to see it all really how it how it works. So it was a great morning. And then I'm actually planning to meet some friends of mine here in London. Good. So you're gonna have you're gonna have some some relaxation as well. Well, some time out, which is always good too. You prime even prime ministers need time out. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us, and enjoy the rest of your trip. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff, and it was a pleasure as always. It's sad not to have Jeff, and we're very hopeful he'll be back next week. But having a Prime Minister's substitute isn't bad. So on the podcast this week, we are talking about representation, in particular representation of ethnic minorities in our parliament, in local government. There's a really interesting story to tell. In 1987, four MPs were elected, ethnic minority MPs. That was the first time we'd had ethnic minority MPs in the House of Commons since 1945, and it was the first black woman MP, Diane Abbott, was elected. Today we've got 52 ethnic minority MPs, but the situation, as we'll hear in local government, falls far short of that. We've got massive racial disparities still in this country. We're going to have a great conversation with Simon Woolley uh, from Operation Black Vote. Many of the changes that we've seen have come because of that organisation. And Sancha Alassia, who's the Labour Mayor of Barking and Dagenham and a local councillor there, talking about some of the hurdles that she has overcome. And this is really a conversation about what kind of country we want to be, whether we can be a country where everyone who lives in it is properly represented. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And we'll be hearing potential reasons to be cheerful from Benjamin Partridge, he of the hit podcast, Beef and Dairy Network. And you'll be pleased to hear that this was recorded last week when Jeff was here. Now, reasons to be cheerful. My reason to be cheerful uh, this week is that I was doing uh, interviews about the environment. As Katrine said, it's been a big issue this week. I'm part of a new environmental justice commission with Green MP Caroline Lucas and former Conservative MP Laura Sands, as well as academics, scientists, people from Extinction Rebellion, young people. Um, But that's not the reason to be cheerful necessarily, although it does make me cheerful. I was on the way to the BBC to do an interview, and who should I run into but Hastings from Line of Duty? And I was walking past him and I suddenly saw him uh, sitting outside the cafe and I turned around and I said, you are brilliant. Anyway, I had a great conversation with him. Uh, I even got uh, a selfie and uh, I I kind of grilled him on whether he is indeed uh, H. Uh, and he didn't give anything away. I wish I could give you a spoiler, but obviously I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, do that but he didn't he was he was pretty uh, discreet as would befit somebody um in his position now jeff asked me to tell you his reason to be cheerful it's not quite quite the same coming from me rather than jeff his reason to be cheerful and i'm sort of glad he's not here on this basis is that he's got many more pictures of me with one sleeve rolled up and one sleeve not rolled up this was discussed on last week's podcast I'm setting a new trend. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. There are some of us in this room tonight who've waited 400 years for this event. 400 years! It feels marvellous, and it feels marvellous because I know it's the fulfilment of, of hopes and dreams for a lot of people, not just in Hackney, but all over the country. With me in Jeff's loft, I'm delighted to say somebody I have a huge amount of respect for, Simon Woolley. He is the founder and director of Operation Black Vote. He's also chair of the Race Disparity Unit Advisory Group set up by Theresa May. Simon, thank you for joining us. Morning. Great to be here. It's it's very good to have you here. That clip we heard is of Paul Boateng and Diane Abbott. They were two of the four MPs elected in 1987, four uh, black and minority ethnic MPs elected in 1987, the first since 1945, Diane, the first woman uh, b- black MP. Uh, what were you doing in 1987? Yeah, no. Actually, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think I was either just about giving up my job 
uh, which was, was which was which was a sales a salesman for Rank Films in Wardour Street right. at the time was a big deal for a boy from Leicester yeah. to be working in in the smoke in the, yeah. in, in the West End. But but I felt at that time twenty six that twenty six twenty seven that I wanted to I wanted to feel that I could be better and I and and in that and in that thought process I thought that I needed to go back to school and maybe university. And there's this American phrase, I think it's an American phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And, I mean, it, it was both extraordinary and terrible that we, we spent, what, 30 years without any, right. um, 40 years without any black and minority ethnic MPs. Mm. And the representation was incredibly low. Were you conscious of that? I, I, think, as a, I think as a child... Uh, and as a young adult, we were always extremely conscious of racism. And I, I remember going home to my mum. This is in the seventies, um, and uh, there was a gang of youths that that were singing "Send the Wogs to Vietnam." Jeez. And um, uh, and I went back to my mum and I said, I knew that they were calling me a, a wog, uh, and I said, "Why? Why do they want to send us to Vietnam?" And she just held me and cried. So you're always conscious of uh, of that, and you know you love people like Pele and Muhammad Ali. They gave you the the kind of you know what you can see at the top of their game, you know the kind of sense of we're, we're special. Um, but in, but in other areas, it, it was you know it was a constant a constant challenge. And then fast forward to 1996. Yep. And you founded Operation Black Vote. Sure. Well, how how did that happen? <laughs> no, crazy. Well. The thing was, is that I'd studied Spanish and politics and uh, studied in Latin America. Latin America in the 90s was at war with itself. Uh, Colombia was going through awful stuff, uh, Guatemala, all of these places. And I was there. I was studying Spanish, but studying Spanish literature and seeing people, seeing people putting their lives on the line for what they believed in, in these countries. And when I came back from that experience, I said to myself, there's absolutely no excuse for me not being on the front line because I won't be shot at. I won't disappear. Uh, I, I, all I'll get is, you know, mild abuse. And so I, I wanted to get political. I started with Charter 88. Great, Which was a sort of kind of human rights, constitution, yeah, Democratic law, reform. Democratic reform. But they were so white and just didn't get black projects, the black struggle. And so with Lee Jasper, the firebrand Lee Jasper, he said, look, you know, let's do our own thing. And I spent six months, I went six months away doing the research because what, what we needed to understand was, is that there was this great sense of powerlessness for black people. You know, why vote? Nothing will change. Uh, it's white institutions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I instinctively thought there could be something different, but needed the evidence. So what I did was I looked at the constituencies and looked where black people, African, Asian, Caribbean, we're political black with, with, our, with Operation Black Vote, looked where we were, brought the team back together for that eureka moment. We sat in the offices in Charter 88 and I said, I've got it. We've got it. We've got the silver bullet. What I was able to demonstrate was, is that far from being powerless, we're in over 80 seats, the black and minority ethnic vote could in effect decide who, who wins and who loses in those elections. That was the game changer because during that 1996-97 election, the, the political leaders viewed the black electorate differently. They viewed black people differently. Because before, and they could say things to us about us, and there was no political payback, pushback. Now we could say we can decide whether you win or lose. And what happened? Well, it was incredible. Uh, I remember in the office again in Charter 88, I get a call from Jack Straw. Uh, Jack Straw, and uh, you know, we're all volunteers. We've got yeah. no money. We're just doing it on the seat of our pants. And Jack Straw calls up and said, um, "Then the Shadow Home Secretary, Shadow Home Secretary." And he said, oh, uh, uh, Simon, will your operation black vote? Yeah, he said, uh, I'd like to for you to convene a meeting so I can make an announcement to, to the black community. And I said, what might that be? And he said that I want to say, if black people vote for Labour, that I will ensure that we have a public inquiry into the death of Stephen Lawrence. I thought, wow. Yeah. And he did, did it, did it on one of our, on one of our platforms. And so fast forward on two decades and a bit more, yeah. where are we now? Well, we've made progress. I mean, you know, I love the clip. My brothers and sisters, you know, the the, the, the dynamic four. Uh, fast forward now, we have 52 black and minority ethnic MPs. What was critical about it as well is, that, of course, back then and still 
quite significantly that that uh, black and minority ethnic communities have predominantly voted Labour. But we thought we must do something different than the African-Americans who predominantly vote Democrats. So we positioned ourselves as non-partisan. And I've said to every conservative leader from, from uh, the, since we began that actually our communities, minority communities, are conservative with a small c. The reason they don't vote for you is they think you're a bunch of racists. It was true back then. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, you can see these leaders first squirm, but then there was a light bulb moment. Hang on a second. And so it's moved them. I mean, now right. that they have, they have a dozen or so. Uh, the Tories. The Tories. Uh, uh, minority MPs. And so, you know, it, it's moved the goalpost. And you, now, now you can get all political parties wanting to serve all communities much better than they did. I, I think on a, on a national level, uh, the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats are doing okay. Uh, I say okay, you know, we're still about 40, 50 short of representative democracy. So we've it, got about, it's about 50. Yeah, it, 50, and, that, and that's about 8%. And nationally, BAME fourteen percent. So we're, we're still short. We're still short. Yeah, yeah. But but and there are more Labour. Yep. Yes. Yeah. But but there there are much yeah more Labour um, as you'd expect. Still seventy percent of BME voters are voting Labour. Uh, sometimes rising uh, rising higher. Um, so nationally, it's okay. Locally, it's still very poor. You must have seen our report last week, where we laid bare. One third, one third of, of councils in England have zero black minority representation or just one councillor. And even in cities, even in the big cities, you know, like, like London, for example, some local authorities like Chelsea, Kensington, Westminster, Hackney have big deficits of BME councillors. And this is, I mean, you know, this doesn't, this wouldn't, it wouldn't make it okay if it was in predominantly white areas, but this is in, this is in, Areas with big, reasonably right. large ethnic minority populations, as well as areas with lower ethnic minority populations. That's exactly right. I mean, when I when I looked at Brighton, Brighton, for example, you know, Brighton sees itself and uh, quite rightly as a progressive uh, city town, um, and and yet it doesn't have a, a minority councillor, uh, and you know the others too um, are, are like that. And let's have a sort of frank conversation about the barriers. Is it yeah. racism? Yeah. Is yeah. it uh, more subtle barriers? Is it people not wanting to put themselves forward because of racism? What, yeah. what, what's, what's going on? Well, I mean, you know, your starting point was, is, is, is there racism? And the trouble is when you say that, people just balk because, because it's, a, it's a sledgehammer. It's, it's a uh, one definition. It's a catch-all term. It's a catch-all yeah. term. And, and there, are, there are, from A to Z, there are levels yeah. of, of racism. But, but without a doubt, there is, there is institutional prejudice, institutional barriers on race, race penalties, uh, let's say. And I think within the Labour Party, for, for example, and, and, and other parties, is that people say, yes, we want you to come through. And then, for example, you might have a, you might have a 70% of, of, of the, the people applying. And by the time you get down to the, the selection, it'll be, it'll be whittled down to 5%. And so through those processes, there are subtle barriers that keep locking out talent. Uh, the Conservatives try and do it in a different way, particularly on the national level. On the national level, that, that the Conservatives will say, here's a bright young black man or black woman. They'll plonk him in a predominantly white area and tell their local party, you're having him or her. And that has sort of, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it, that in quite, in quite white areas, yep. the Tories have been selecting ethnic minority candidates, that's to be fair to them. No, no, that's how they do it. That's And do you like that as an approach? Well, I I, I don't care how you do it as long as you do yeah. it. Uh, so, so you know, I, I just say, look, first and foremost, you only choose talented people, uh, but you make sure that you have pathways to them. Now, that might be all black shortlist. That might be the conservative way of, of saying, this is who you're getting. They're brilliant. Support them. What you have to do is, is that one, you have to look at the, the whole infrastructure because the infrastructure is consumed with barriers for, for, for our communities. But whilst you are unpicking that, as you've done, as the Labour Party have done for women, that you need to ways of circumventing the problem. What, what are the, the, there's a sort of barriers of prejudice. What are the other barriers, would you say? Well, the, the other barriers are when I say to our communities, look, politics is a numbers game. And in certain areas, we've got the numbers. 
Uh, and if you don't realize that and don't utilize that, then you're always dependent upon, you know, for labor areas, for example, a, a, often a liberal elite that right. may one day like you, the next day they don't. And uh, so I, I'm saying that I'm saying that we need a challenge both bottom up that we've got to join political parties. Yeah, uh, that's uh, the numbers point. That's the numbers point. But there needs to be enlightenment from 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 the top. The alignment from the top is, look, you want to win. These are these are the people that will help you win because these can swing it one way or another. So we try and give the, the kind of the self-interest argument. But for me, uh, for, for you, Ed, you know, that this benefits everyone. It's not a zero-sum game. Our democracy is so much better when you have diversity around the tables, particularly around important issues of, of knife crime and schools and employment. Well, that was my next question, actually, which is, so the number's gone from zero... <laughs> MPs in 1987 to, did you say 50? 52. 52 today. How has that changed politics? I mean, it's obviously right in principle. Yeah. And we need to get, in my view, higher mm. um, so that we look like the population that we seek to represent. But how has it changed the issues in politics, do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I think when you have issues like immigration, when you have issues like, um, like uh, racism, then many more white MPs will be abhorrent about what's going on and speak out because they can see, they look around the chamber and they see their black colleagues and they think, I better talk about this. When David Lammy spoke about Windrush, I mean, you know, that, that was one that was visceral. Yeah. Uh, and and that I think the whole parliament was shocked uh, and appalled. Uh, and, you know, I thought Amber Rudd was going to cry. Do you think the reaction on Windrush was different today than it would have been 10 years ago, oh. 20 years ago? Certainly 30 years ago. It would have been raised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would have been one of those things that gets pushed under the carpet and a, f- a footnote in history. This was centre stage. Lamy made sure it was. Now, Simon, you've got various ways in which OBV seeks to address the democratic deficit. What, one of them is a shadowing scheme. And I'm delighted to say that Clive Lewis mm-hmm. what shadowed me, me or shadowed somebody in my office. Uh, he's now a leading Labour MP on the on the front bench uh, in the Treasury team. Somebody widely admired. Is is that kind of thing? Does that kind of thing work? Well, our approach to changing the world is is I guess uh, twofold. One is to challenge the institutions to make them more inclusive, make them more representative. You know, demand policies that reflect the people they seek to serve. The other side is to nurture talent. And, you know, is I, I, where I blow my, my own trumpet here, that we are the most successful organisation in nurturing talent. 10% of all BME MPs come from Operation Black Vote. Wow. Uh, three directly elected mayors. You know, Marvin Reeves, yeah. the descendant of an African slave, now yeah. running a former slave city. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and councillors, over 100 magistrates uh, uh, dispensing justice in our local courts. So you, you can do it. You, you, what you do is, is that, is that you, people come to you and say they, they want to participate and you give them a framework, uh, uh, with, with, with ethics and values. And, and then you say, go off and deliver. And that's with all the political parties. Helen Grant is a conservative former minister from Operation, Operation Black Vote. So no. These things work. These things, these things work. For one, you have to inspire people, and then two, give them a pathway, give them the tools. And you open up the fortress, you know, the sort of sense of Parliament being this weird place. Right. I mean, it is a weird place, but, you know, at least it, people can exactly. you know, exactly. understand it. Exactly. And also, too, we, you know, we, we want bag carriers that, that are black, too. You know, when you see advisors, when yeah. you see assistants, yeah. and they're all white, yeah. then, then we need to change that dynamic, that, that dynamic too. Talk to us then about v- uh, voter registration, because the numbers are quite shocking, aren't they? In some places, they're really shocking. And with, um, with some communities, they're shocking. For example, in London, 50% of young African and Caribbeans are, are not registered to vote. I mean, that is... It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And that's because... And it, it, primarily because they don't see our institutions reflecting their concerns. I mean, you know, as a young man, that I, we're in a studio now with three, with three white men, right? And let me ask all of you, uh, how many of you have been stopped and searched? No much less stopped and strip searched. Now, if I asked, if I randomly went out there and asked three black men, they'd all say that they'd been stopped, stopped and searched multiple times. And if you're strip searched, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. you know, don't, let's not go there. And, and so with that mindset, 
you know, they are antagonistic against institutions when you've had that experience. And so we've got to say to them, that's precisely why you should register, because that's how you change things. And what about the issues? Because you've got this role with Theresa May uh, on the advisory group uh, in the race disparity unit in the Mm. cabinet office. What's that? T- tell us the the issues that that's looking at, and your lesser comment on Theresa May, but your your sense about whether these issues are going to be addressed. Right. Well, first and foremost, having this framework is the first in a Western democracy to have it, which is basically saying that you need audits in your your uh, uh, democratic institutions to see whether or not they're effectively dealing with uh, race inequalities. We criminal are, justice. Criminal justice, housing, uh, right, right across the piece, right across Whitehall. Uh, and I, I asked Theresa May when she was in the uh, Home Office to have this audit, and she said yes, and then it got kicked into the long grass. And then she said, okay, let's do it across Whitehall. Uh, lay in bed uncomfortable truths with the David Lammy mantra, actually, uh, that, she, that she run with, explain or change. E- explain why... Explain why black students going to universities are the same as white students, but come out with a lesser grade. Explain why a black person has to give in seven or eight times more applications just to get an interview with the same, with the same qualifications. The first step was for the first year was to lay bare the, un- the, the uncomfortable truths, uh, in, in stop and search, in housing, in health. Uh, and, you know, they, they were pretty, pretty awful. The, the second stage was, is that pick three priorities in which, where you want to make the biggest difference. And the three priorities were employment, education, and criminal justice. So employment, so, you know, what are the levers that we can, we can lobby government to make those changes? And the one that we decided on was the ethnic minority pay gap. That we've got it for gender. So, you know, there's a pathway there. Uh, now the consultation's over. And now it's about delivering it. And that will force that will force all big employers to lay bare who they're employing, who's getting paid what, and then it forces them to have plans. If you think about yourself in the 1970s growing up in Leicester and the yeah. racism that you encountered, mm. and then you think about the equivalent of you today, maybe in Leicester, maybe in London, wherever, yeah. how different is the experience and how much further is there to go? Right, That's a good question. Because if you'd have asked me that maybe a few months ago, I'd have said we've made fantastic, really, really demonstrable progress in so many areas uh, that we can be proud of. Clearly, lots of challenges to go. The subtle racism uh, is, is, is something that we need, we need to tackle. And yet, you know, Ed, before we began, we were talking about our children, you know, yours and, and my, my 13-year-old with plenty of swagger. And he said to me, he said to me the other day, he said, Daddy, he's playing Fortnite, which is, you know, yeah. the Xbox phenomenon. Yeah. And they play with their friends and then friends of friends. And he, he said to me, my son said to me, Dad, the racism on, uh, from the, the other people on this is, is off the scale. So he's a 13-year-old kid. And he'll get somebody from Manchester or Liverpool saying, hey, are you an N-word? Are you an effing N-word? And, and, he, and he'll say, and he'll say, he'll respond, uh, if you mean, am I, am I black? Yes, I am. Actually, I'm mixed heritage. And, you know, my, my son's sharp and he, I think for one of the kids, he said, he said that, um, I look like your, probably your mum wants to look like when she goes to the suntan booth. <laughs> <laughs> and what, he said to me, one of the kids said, yeah, that's right. She does. How did you know that? But that's his way and his way of, of his friends trying to defend themselves. But I thought, I thought, we'd be done with that. And yet, I think that Brexit, the, the xenophobic strand in Brexit, has unleashed a level of racism that, uh, that has permeated from young and old, uh, which has become legitimised. And when you look at the campaigns and your theory of change and how much you've achieved, and then you look at more contemporary campaigns like in the US Black Lives Matter yeah. and you know someone with extraordinary experience and extraordinary achievements behind you in terms of your campaigning how do you think the next set of changes happen yeah. what, what, how mm-hmm. does that process of change carry on and get to where it needs to get to both well, both sort of on the economic and, <clears throat> and and social injustices and the sort of political injustices well, well I think I think there's a movement there's a movement in mainland Europe that they're, they're, and mainland Europe now that they, it's like we've learned from the States 
and uh, the black groups have learning from us. And, and the fantastic thing about it is this is a golden thread. We, we hosted Reverend Al Sharpton last week yes. in the UK. He's a famous American civ- civil, rights civil rights icon. leader. Civil rights icon. And uh, I'll be in Brussels with black groups there that are really raising the issue of Afrophobia on a, on an EU level. You know, right now we're, we're confronting, we're confronting this, um, this, the empire strikes back. Uh, in mainland Europe and the UK yeah. uh, with this right-wing populism yeah. going on. Yeah. But beneath that, that, there is something special going on and people lobbying, people recognising that if we get involved, we can change these institutions. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm like you as a, as a, if you like, a civil rights activist, you know, whether whether we call ourselves that or yeah, not, yeah. that you're just driven. You just wake up in the morning thinking, how can I change the world? How can I? And so, you know, we're barely ever uh, uh, negative and we'd never throw in the towel you see that you see the positive but also you're realistic enough to know where the challenges are now we have this thing on the podcast and in jeff's absence i, I would be remiss of me not to ask you about this called the jeffocracy which is <laughs> jeff as the supreme uh ruler yeah. if jeff made you the minister for whatever you wanted really uh representation tackling racial injustice uh, whatever title you wanted, what would be the the first thing that you would do? What's the most important thing? I think the first thing I, I would say is that um, that I believe that in every in every street, in every street, in every city, in every corner of the UK, there's potential talent, and that as a starting point would lead me then to say that our challenge is to ensure that potential talent has a pathway. And if you, I think, if you start with that, uh, that then you can say. This is not a zero-sum game, that everybody benefits by unleashing creativity, releasing energy, that, that, that be self-interest in that, in that process and great things will happen. Last question. You've been at this for 20 <laughs> years plus. Yeah. Do you feel sort of cheerful, optimistic? I always feel optimistic. Uh, I, I, I often feel frustrated because I just know that things can be much better. Um, and, you know, when I, when I see, I see the self-hatred of black people killing other black people and, uh, and or people having to change their name just to get an interview, inside I, I weep, Ed, because I think it's a tragedy. But, you know, after, after those, shedding those kind of uh, metaphoric tears, I say, it drives me to, 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 to want to make a difference. And, and so, you know, I think I'm lucky, and I'm sure you are, when you wake up thinking, I can, I can do these things. It's a great feeling. Well, you are making a difference. You have been making a difference. And you'll continue to. Simon Woolley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, man. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Sanchia Alassia, who is a councillor in Barking and Dagenham and is currently serving as mayor of Barking and Dagenham. Sancha, thanks so much for joining us. And I think I'm right in saying that you're one of the Operation Black Vote alumni, having worked with Sadiq Khan on an OBV shadowing scheme. Yeah, that's right. What was your experience like and what impact did that have? Yeah, I mean, I was really grateful to have the opportunity for Operation Black Vote. And at that time, Sadiq Khan was a new MP and he was really open. He um, took me around his Westminster office as well as his constituency office. So, yeah, I really got a real insight into the workings of um, an MP. And what barriers did, did you face in getting into the world of politics, do you think? In terms of representation, you don't see people that look like you in those roles. So you do wonder if it's something that you can do. Um, there's not a lot of role models from, from BME backgrounds. I didn't come from a political background or family, so... What did your family do? What were their jobs? Uh, my dad was a train driver and my mum was a teacher, so, um, right. you know, if you don't have the links and you don't have um, the connections, then you don't always know how to go about things, and that's why I'm really grateful to Operation Black Vote, because if it wasn't for that opportunity... Um, I wouldn't have, you know, understood a little bit more about how politics works. I mean, we still don't have true representation. Um, yeah. But um, even if you look in public life, I mean, I have a professional job as well. Um, there's still an underrepresentation of, of a lot of groups at the senior levels of most organisations in this country. Um, and there are a lot of barriers. And I think there's still a lot of stereotypes that people have um, about people from different groups. Um 
that can hinder their progression. In the recent OBV report, Barking Dagenham was one of the most representative councils, whilst a third of other councils had one or no BAME councillors. Yeah. What do you think is the re... And, and obviously Westminster's got a problem too, yeah. but, but, but in a way in some local authorities it's even worse than Westminster. Yeah. What's your sense of why that is and what we do about it? We need to spot talent and nurture talent and encourage that. Again, as I said, if people don't see people that look like them in those roles, they don't necessarily think they can achieve it. But I think political parties need to also reach out um, recognise that they're unrepresentative and actually reach out and not expect people to come to our meetings, which can be quite boring um, most of the time. But actually, we need to go to where they are. We should go to the community centres, faith groups, um, and, and, all, and all over the place. And we should reach out to them and meet them where they are um, to encourage them to get involved and to open up our world a little bit um, and not make it seem so mystified. Now, one of the other strengths of Barking Dagenham is that uh, the BMP had 12 councillors mm, before 2010, right, yeah. but uh, now they've been, yeah. they, they, they don't have any councillors yeah, anymore. Right. What should we learn from this? What's the secret of the success? The secret of the success is one we're willing to share. Um, it took a lot of hard work. I mean, I moved yep. into the borough in 2006, um, 2007, so that was the year after the 12 BNP um, councillors had been elected. And it took, with me and my colleagues, three years of actually quite hard work of listening to residents, listening to where the local Labour Party had failed, because it had failed in some ways, and then listening to what residents to see how we could work with them to improve our local area. Um, and there was a lot of right. hostility at first, but it did take a good three years to build that trust back up. And the reason why they haven't been elected since is because we keep that conversation and, di- and dialogue and community cohesion going. So it's not something that once they've been voted off, you can sort of drop the ball. You have to keep in touch with your residents and, and we maintain that. Now, now, we've got a thing on the podcast called the Jeff Oxley and Jeff is unfortunately not not here today. But if Jeff made you the sort of Minister for Democracy... <laughs> What's what's the thing? And I'm sure you'd be you do a great job. What, what's the thing you do to increase BAME representation and participation at, at all levels? What do you think is the key? What's the key thing that we could do or key things? I'm an advocate of 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 in terms of representation. I'm an advocate of all black shortlists. So I would legislate for that in the same way for all women's shortlists. I think as well in yep. terms of reaching out. So our local party when the council elections are coming up and we know people want to put themselves forward, we specifically have sessions for underrepresented groups. So for women, BME, um, LGBT and so on. So we particularly reach out to those groups and say, we know we don't represent you and serve you in the way that we should. So, you know, I think some reaching out on, on, on our side as well. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So what do I think? Um, I'm struck, and I think it is worth emphasising this by what I said in the introduction, which is how far we've come. When I I was 18 years old in 1987, uh, we had zero uh, black and minority ethnic MPs before that election, uh, and today we have 52. And that is an extraordinary advance, and I think it is really important to acknowledge that that wouldn't have happened without popular pressure. I think we see that, you know, in relation to this issue and the work that Operation Black Vote has done, we see that in relation to Extinction Rebellion. So I think the way popular movements really force change, and I think the, it's really interesting the way the Operation Black Vote kind of made politicians sort of wake up and think this is a big voting block that you've got and you're ignoring and you need to take it seriously, not just because of justice, but because of politicians' sort of more selfish motivations. Uh, secondly, I'm also struck by how far we've got to go. Um, I thought Simon Woolley's story about his son playing Fortnite and the racism. If you think about Diane Abbott, you know, the most abused politician uh, in in Britain, you know, we've still got a long way to go to, to counter really pretty crude racism, as well as all the racial disparities uh, that Simon was rightly talking about. And, and they need to be addressed and they need to be on the agenda and his question to us about stop and search where me joe and joel sort of looked blank when he was asked whether we'd been ever been stopped and searched and it you know shows such such a contrast and then thirdly there's this rather techie term and you know how i love techie terms intersectionality which is about if you like cross-cutting forms of discrimination so you know 
discrimination of about uh, in terms of race can also be discrimination in terms of class you're talking about discrimination against people who are black but also people who are working class and and i think all those forms of discrimination interact in different ways and class is part of it too and the extent to which we have uh, mps from a working class background is also an issue uh, for us in our politics parliament has become more middle class maybe you might say people, more people like me And we've got to address that, too, as part of addressing all of these different forms of discrimination, which happen on their own and together. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on today's episode about representation and race or any other topic that you want to feature uh, on the show please email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or you can find us on twitter at cheerful podcast and also on instagram at the same address or you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast now cycling certainly got people talking and emailing this is from poppy walton hi jeff and ed i enjoy your podcast every week I really enjoyed this week's about cycling. I've been cycling in London for about two years now, and it's for the most part really great. You asked what government could be doing more of to get people on their bikes, and I totally agree about infrastructure. However, I would also like to highlight and give a shout out to Southwark Council. I wanted to cycle for ages, but lacked the confidence. I live in Southwark, and they offered free cycle confidence classes for all abilities. It was the basic stuff that really helped, like where to put yourself on the road, particularly at junctions, and it definitely boosted my confidence. The guy supporting me even offered to cycle me in and out of work to get my confidence up on my commute. I could go on, but basically everyone should cycle. If there's a role for a junior minister for cycling in the Jeffocracy, I'd love an interview for the job. Thanks, Poppy. And then she also says, P.S. It has to be an SPF 50 or above on your face, Ed. I think that's something to do with the cream on my face uh, and how I protect myself from dangerous UV rays. Thank you, Poppy. Uh, and we had a number of emails, and we're not going to read them all out, about this issue of safety and basically the, fa- the way that we made it sound incredibly scary to cycle uh, in London and that uh, this was a bit discouraging. And there are cycle confidence classes all over the country uh, that you can find. And this one from Gareth Hayes is on that theme. Gentlemen, I really enjoyed your episode on cycling. You had great guests and it inspired me to cycle more than I do today. But I know you have your charming, self-deprecating sense of humour. Thank you, Gareth. But did you really have to make it sound so difficult and dangerous to ride a bike in London? Tens of thousands of us do this every day. And you've undermined your message by making it sound so risky when clearly it isn't. Come on, give it a go and champion the change you want to see happen. All the best, Gareth. He then goes on, P.S. Please, can you also bring back the death penalty? Or at very least, the naughty step for bike thieves is a significant deterrent to cycling in London. And therefore, these people are directly contributing to poorer health and higher mortality. On a sort of slightly, maybe surprising lateral theme, Fergus Carr emailed us, Dear Ed and Jeff, having finally caught up listening to every episode, I want to get in touch to let you know that I'm a huge fan. On your recent cycling episode, I agree cycling is a great way to get around, get fit and reduce our car use of cars. However, it's become a bit of an issue for my community. I live on a narrow boat on the canals predominantly in London, but continuously cruising as far as Watford to the west and where in the east. The problem is that cyclists race along the towpath, never use their bell, and regularly almost knock people, dogs, children over. I'm not quite sure how this can be solved, 
but perhaps an upgraded roadside cycle network would be better than diverting them through narrow towpaths, which also needs upgrading. Sorry for the rant, and keep making people cheerful. All the best, Fergus Carr. And finally, we have Emily Turner. We can take a bit of credit here. Hi, Jeff and Ed. Thank you so much for encouraging me to get back on my bike. I've been an on-again, off-again cyclist in London for about six years, but since I started working in central London on a more regular workday schedule, it's been a lot more off-again. I 100% agree with your guests that the attitude towards cycling needs to change. I ride very slowly in capitals on my red basket-supporting Dutch-style cruiser bike with a pink flowery helmet, and I've experienced a lot of visible aggression and irritation from some, and by no means all, spandex-clad cyclists who seem to think that stopping at a red light or not dodging around stop buses is some kind of sin. I really enjoy my cycling to work, and it's by far the fastest way to get there, and I think if there were more casual cyclists like me, it would be a lot better for everyone. By the way, I live near Jeff and work near Ed, and I'd be more than happy to guide you through the route I take, which is almost entirely small side roads and separated cycle lanes. There's no need to fear. All the best, Emily. Well, look, thank you so much for all of your uh, emails. I'm not going to necessarily promise to take my life in my hands and go cycling, but I will consider it very carefully send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and we are thrilled to be joined by benjamin partridge from the beef and dairy network podcast hello hello this is a, a very exciting moment highly recommended it's, it's, podcast it's a very funny podcast Thank uh, you. for people who don't know it can you can you do the uh, the elevator pitch yeah i haven't really worked out my elevator pitch despite the fact that it's been going for a few years it just sounds bad when i describe it but it's better than it sounds it's a um sort of fictional kind of spoofy uh, podcast for the beef industry, as if it was like an industry podcast. I know that doesn't sound promising, but it, it, it it's good. It is. It's fantastic. <laughs> Has anybody from the real beef industry been in touch? Yeah, I get a lot of very lazy PR professionals who have done a Google search sending me books about kind of antibiotic swill and that kind of thing, which I always accept. But um, <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm an avid listener. I am an acolyte of the Jeffocracy. Great, wow. well, great. Well, you that's know, that, that is the favor. best way to get promotion within the Jeffocracy. When the revolution comes. Oh, that's I what like I should it. be doing. Yeah. I should be an acolyte. Yeah, yeah. The mm. the more uh, acolyte-ish, the, the better, if you want to rise through the ranks. Okay. Yeah. It's good I mean, my plan is that in the upcoming European elections, I'm just going to write a little, my own little box with Jeffocracy and then take that. Oh, can, can I just ask be. everybody... <laughs> a writing to the campaign to the Jeffocracy. <laughs> to do that. I, mean, I cannot endorse another yeah, political no, I, I party. Know, I know you can absolutely can't. clear. People need to vote Labour. But if you were going to... You're nope. still not. You're no, still no, going to. No, no. I think not. I don't want to be expelled. <laughs> I mean, to be expelled for supporting the Jeffocracy <laughs> would be a sort of really bad way to go. It would be a bad end to my career. I, th- I tend to think. Yeah, it's kind of as like- I go before the NEC <laughs> National Executive to sort of say, "Now, Ed, you, we, you seem to support another political party, something called the Jeffocracy." You're doing it every weekend. You know, you've jumped the shark. <laughs> Uh, all right, Benjamin, you've brought in some uh, ideas with you. What's, uh, what's the first one? I have. Uh, I know that this podcast is a Brexit-free zone, but I've got something that I think that Leavers and Remainers will come together and uh, agree on, which is that every week from now on that a Brexit decision is delayed or isn't made, every MP has to take off an item of clothing. <laughs> so, you know, within a few weeks, you're going to be getting down to sort of, you know, vest and pants territory right then, yeah and, and so obviously add this one what's the incentive you? structures here the incentive structures are mps won't want to have to strip off yeah, yeah. So, so therefore they'll get a decision made i mean there'll be a few exhibitions yeah. Surely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it depends like you know but what's the motivation of the public though in this well they want they want brexit to be sorted out. i see so they will think it, it they want to see their mps naked though that's the thing I think, think you know, I think you're underestimating yeah. the public there. Yeah, over overestimating. Over <laughs> I mean, it comes down to how much Theresa May wants to have to stand opposite Jeremy, Cor- uh, sort of naked Jeremy Corbyn at, at Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, he does seem like a man who's got a lot of layers going on. <laughs> There'd be a lot of vests. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, and also, yeah, like you, you, you could try and get around it by going in the first week wearing a lot of clothes. Mm. But that's in its own way ridiculous if you're wearing like a huge coat and a hat, and you know, I think it would just give everyone the impetus they would need to. Uh, would, it, would, would would you can you know would it would it give you the impetus? Definitely, yeah. 
Yeah. All right. We'll we'll have that. I think it works. Uh, what do you have next? My second one um, is that hand dryers should be decibel limited to a reasonable volume. Yeah, my son is terrified of them. Of course, but, so interesting. Yeah. So is mine. Yeah, because but they've got louder. They have absolutely got louder. There's been a sort of arms race, I think, over the past ten, fifteen years. Uh, we got too excited that we could and didn't think my about whether we should. Really don't like them. That's so. I hate them. I I never use them now. Uh, never use them. So if you shake my hand, it's often wet. <laughs> and you have to do enough to explain. Oh, it's only water. Yeah, of course, exactly. Yes. But it's uh, you're in a tiny little room. You've you wash your hands and then you go over to the dryer and it sounds like a Harrier jump jet taking off and it's absolutely horrible. I think it's part of something in general. I think in general as a society and this is maybe is a, a bit of a pseudo point. We don't really care about things being too noisy, and everything is too noisy. And I think, like, if you're a caveman or like a man in a or a woman in a um, state of nature, the loudest thing you'd ever hear would be like the occasional thunderclap. But apart from that, everything would be generally fairly quiet. What about like a loud elephant, though. <laughs> a landslide. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of lion that has come out to eat you? But I sort of find, and I don't know if it's just me being peculiar, is that I, I go through life just constantly wishing everything was a bit quieter. And do you long for silence? Not really. I, I, I almost, I don't like silence because then I can hear my own thoughts. I'd rather the sort of noise and distraction of the city around me than having to confront what what lies within. You'd rather a loud Dyson Airblade at all times, just <laughs> yeah, it's just to block everything out. Yeah. I, I'm basically yeah. in favour of this for the for the for the kids. It's for the kids. Okay, a- and me. Uh, um, good. <laughs> yeah, You're taking it on. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, uh, my third one is the National Theatre should be free. Mm. I think in general things should be free a lot more. I know mm. that's a really naive and no, it's good. But if you are it's paid for by the public, and yet it's still really, really expensive. And a lot of theatre is publicly uh, funded, and I'm very passionate about arts funding. But I think you get, you know, there's all this funding to make it, and then at the last hurdle, you just ruin it by making it 60 quid. It's really interesting, actually. I know somebody who works in the theatre who was pitching this exact idea to me. Imagine how revolutionary it would be if just a theatre or well, lots was, of theatres were just completely free. Great thing that Labour did when they came in. And free they, museums and galleries. Yeah. yeah. And and you know I don't I literally don't know I haven't seen what that did for numbers of visitors. Massive increase. But what but what it also it it says a lot about who we want to be yeah, as a country. Yeah, totally. I'm sure if you looked at a spreadsheet with the budget of the National Theatre, the amount of money that comes in from ticket sales is probably quite a small portion of the money that they spend. So I think it's probably doable, and you could just do a sort of lottery system where you, you know, you is really interesting idea. Um, Universal Basic Theatre. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. UBT. We agree with your idea. Yes. Okay, next one. There needs to be government advice about how often you should wash your trousers. <laughs> I'm really intrigued by how this. How you should wash your trousers? Yeah, because... I'm really intrigued by this. It's. I think it's simple with shirts, pants, socks. You know how often to wash yes. those. That's on every use. And then trousers is an absolute wild west for me. I don't know if this is just personally. I've got no idea. They don't really ever smell. Or get to a stage where they smell, unless you've done something really like mucky in them. I don't mean like that. I mean like if you've been in a smoky room or whatever. And like sometimes you'll you'll hear someone saying that you should never wash your jeans or you should freeze them. Yes, I I spoke to a jean expert some years ago. A jean expert, a, jeans, a <laughs> denim expert, and she said never wash your jeans. Just put them in the freezer. What? Yeah, yeah. Pervert. I tried it the other night. Did it work? Well, I felt like my jeans were a bit smelly, and I thought, should I wash them? No, I'm going to try putting them in the freezer. Did they work? Well, they they don't seem to be smelly anymore, so maybe it worked. I don't know if they were ever smelly in the first place. So I, I think you can sort of get to the point where they feel, trousers can feel sort of in need of a wash. Like they're going to start but walking on their own. But I agree that it is sort of, you know, they've got that slightly kind of overly used feeling. <laughs> but I mean, it is rather hard to put your... But I think you can push through that feeling and then they start feeling fresh again. They really do start cleaning themselves after a while. So do you think there should be some kind of committee, some kind of investigation? It needs to be cross-party, that's for sure. (laughs) True. You know, this can't be... Maybe with a judge? Maybe with a judge. judge Judge-led, yeah. Like, you know, when they bring out a judge out of retirement and they sort of do a last job. And they do that. So what what are genes? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and we can all go in and testify in front of this. It's really useful. The Benjaminocracy is really good. Yeah. It's not a Benjaminocracy. It's just a part of my glorious Jeffocracy. Oh, you've you've really got this acolyte thing. (laughs) He's really got a fine art. I am a peasant to your... (laughs) You know, like, people talk about sovereignty. We all see sovereignty. 
when the yeah. Jeff Ogg sees. We'll see it in action. This is wonderful. This is, you're, you're, you're my favourite surf that I've ever made. <laughs> it's going to be impossible from now on. Um, What's next? Christmas should be at the end of January. Tell us more. My thinking is that January and February are a slog. Yeah. Mm. And December, increasingly, and I wonder if this is to do with global warming, is quite a warm... It doesn't. It's not really winter yet, so it hasn't really got depressing yet. It's just kind of the big. It's like the end of autumn. We've had a nice time in autumn with the leaves and all that kind of stuff, and then we just blow Christmas far too early. We need to get really depressed, and then end of January we save ourselves from winter, but it also avoids the weird Christmas New Year thing where they're a bit too close together. Yeah, and really we could really appreciate New Year, which is the worst of the sort of national holidays at the moment. Yeah, that could come into its own a bit more. Yeah, and we've already had like Halloween and Bonfire Night very close together. Exactly, and there's not much going on. No, at the other end you've got Valentine's Day, which is a miserable holiday. Mm. It's not really a holiday; it's just like a miserable event. Of course, in Australia, the Christmas is the high of the summer, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, but for you know, it should be for us. I don't care if it's just British Christmas; <laughs> just moves to the end of January. So could I mean is is there a is there a parliamentary mechanism where you could introduce this ad? Mm. A British Maybe. Christmas for British people. <laughs> okay, that that might work. Uh, what's your final idea, Benjamin? Final idea. I think food in Greg's, the price should change depending on how warm it is. Now I know that sounds like something that Ed had to wrestle with whilst he was in the opposition. <laughs> which was the pasty tax. Which no yes. one I don't think Ed fully understood. I certainly didn't. And was to do with whether you put VAT on a pasty? Is that right? the, I went on a trip to Greg's with Ed Balls. That's yeah, the, I, that's I remember that because, yeah. and I don't know if you got some opprobrium at the time, there's a video of you and Ed Balls in, in a yeah. service station in a Greg's buying some pasties, yeah. and he pays with a £50 note. Does he? <laughs> and <laughs> Is that true? And I don't think anyone noticed at the time, but I remember thinking, that should be... That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so somebody should have uh, should picked yeah. up on that. Give you um, insight into the way Ed Balls uh, pay things. Uh, yeah, so it should be cheaper the colder it gets. Yeah, so it should have a little uh, thermometer in it, which is is linked to a mechanism which with. But they price. warm it up for you, though. No, they don't. They, it comes out of the. It comes out and it's warm, and then it slowly gets colder throughout the afternoon until by the end of the afternoon, it's just a horrible. So, do you still pay VAT on it if it's cold at the end of the afternoon? Well, they got rid of that, didn't they? Right, but what was the, what was the idea then? If it was hot, you had to pay VAT on it, and if it was cold, you didn't have to pay VAT on it. And there were there was all this sort of uh, discussion about. Oh, we long for these days when these were the big issues. <laughs> it was a big issue though. The, the pasty sacks weirdly. Oh, when we didn't thing. know what the customs union was, and we were, <laughs> and we were debating the pasty tax. Uh, but yeah. you're advocating microchipping all Greg's products. Yes, right. Um, just to make it a bit fairer, because you go in. And you go... Passports for pasties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing it would be good for is if you then took it abroad and wanted to bring it back into the country, you wouldn't have to put it into quarantine <laughs> for a long period. It would have its own ID card. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think that must be right. So you could, it would be like greater importation of sausage rolls or exportation of sausage rolls. And then also you could take its DNA and then if it was linked to a crime, it could go on the crime database. Like, so many different things you could do with it. Yeah. Has anyone had the vegetarian sausage roll? I've had the, yeah, the vegan one. Vegan. Right. Yeah. It's lovely. That's good to know it exists because I've tried to buy it on a number of occasions and never been able to find it. Yeah, they're not it. in every Greg's. Right. I, there's one that I go to in Cardiff where they've always got them. Good to know. Yeah. They're a slightly weird colour, but then so is a normal Greg sausage roll, so, you know. Uh, the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Yes, give it a go. Subscribe to it. It's very Great funny. ideas, Benjamin. And, and we definitely, we definitely, I mean, Jeff likes you because you've been like, you know. I've been brown nosing him hard. Brown nosing him, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was trying to find a polite, more polite way of saying it, uh, but it escaped me. And I like you because you've got good ideas. Thank you, Ed. My pleasure. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, well, we're in the outro. Uh, quick programming note we're we're back on the road as you know at doing our first live show for months and months we're going to be at the underbelly on the south bank in may it's may 19th so it's less than two weeks to go that show is selling out quite fast it's going to be a great show we're talking about climate change and the change in public mood we're seeing and what really needs to be done i'm delighted to say that we're going to be joined among others by fahana yamin she is from extinction rebellion she you might have seen her being arrested outside the shell building but we've got other great guests too who we'll be announcing uh, shortly go to the internet type in south bank uh, underbelly reasons to be cheerful buy your tickets now i'd like to thank our fantastic guests 
uh, Katrine Jacobs Dottier ably filling in for Jeff Lloyd, Simon Woolley, Director of Operation Black Vote, and Sanchia Alassia, the Mayor of Barking and Dagenham, and thanks to Benjamin Partridge. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with research by Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Ed C. did our music. James Deakin did our idents. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And Emily Power did our artwork. And I met Emily Power. It was Sarah Barron, Jeff's uh, wife's uh, 40th birthday party last Sunday night. And I got a selfie with the brilliant Emily Power, who's very grateful for our bigging up of her very well-deserved. It's time for us to go now. I've been King of the Castle. He's been the silent partner. And these have been Reasons to be Chiffed.